everyone. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol and I just want to thank you for tuning into this episode, A Heart of Sincerity and Truth. I've actually been camped out on this topic of sincerity and truth for several months. In fact, I recorded a podcast on this topic the other week and released it, but then I deleted it because I just felt like there was more to say that I believe I left out but also some things perhaps I wanted to say differently. So if you've already listened to Sincerity and Truth, you're probably wondering, is this the same thing? Well, you can still tune in because there are some things that I've added to this. I'm going to be very honest with all of you today and probably a bit zealous at times. I'm concerned. I'm very concerned, actually. We are witnessing an unraveling of biblical morality all around us. A great shaking has come, and it's been building for years. And for many of us, we are growing pretty uncomfortable, aren't we? And yet, at the same time, there's this astonishing silence within the church. Not all, I know that. There are some very courageous voices out there speaking God's truth in some pretty hostile environments, and I bless you in that. But other than that, it's pretty quiet. And I'm concerned that the church's silence in the face of evil is going to lead to some devastating consequences. The more obsessive people become with political correctness, the quieter we seem to get. And I know, I mean, let's face it, in Christianity, some of us are afraid to be hated by the world. I, I totally get that. Believe me, I get that. I get some pushback on some things. It's not easy to speak through our own human weakness, the truth and love. But for me personally, I look around and first of all, the name of our Lord, the name of our Lord Jesus is being degra- degraded everywhere. And then his moral absolutes, things that have been in existence before time began, are being challenged by his very own creation, mere mortal men, mankind. And his word, well, his word is being thrown out there now as something outdated or culturally irrelevant, that we don't need to live by what the Bible says today because, well, it was written for a different time, right? So rather, we can now connect to God through nature or experiences or through other spiritual avenues. I'm sorry, what a cop-out. Denying denying God's word that's infallible? That's just another excuse to not hold ourselves accountable to anyone. And so things are unraveling all around us, including our dignity, our modesty, and just basic truth. Good is becoming evil, and evil is becoming good, just as the Bible said it would, as we exchange the truth of God for the lie, which he'll give us over to if we do not repent and return. Even the latest research from George Barnes states that since the pandemic, the number of Americans who self-identify as Christians continues to fall, and the group called the don'ts, the people who don't believe in God, don't know if there is a God, or don't care one way or the other, continues to grow. And so as Christians, we need to do some serious self-examination. Where is our heart? Is it loyal to our Father and His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ? Or is it compromised? And so that's where we're headed in this podcast. What it truly means to live out our faith with a heart of sincerity and in truth, God's truth, Because if we're not careful, if our heart is not solely his, if his truth is not the truth we live by, then we are operating in what's called double-mindedness, a divided heart. And if we're operating like that, we're going to be bringing people a different gospel, a different spirit, a different Jesus. And we need to be really careful of that. So to begin, I want to take you into the Old Testament for a minute before we move into the the New Testament. And yes, I'm just going to prepare you. This podcast might go long because you know what? With the world unraveling, I really can't comprehend how I I can do a 15-minute chat on something 
that is so important for our faith. So it might run long. You might need to take this in chunks or take this in parts. However you want to listen to it is fine. And uh, But I just, I just feel like there's a lot we need to cover. So I'm going to begin in the Old Testament and then move into the New. So right after the book of Joshua in the Old Testament, you have the book of Judges. And right when the book of Judges begins, it opens up with the death of Joshua. It says that the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord, right, which he had done for Israel. But then it says something really sobering and kind of sad. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Judges 2.10 Ponder that for a minute. It took only one generation after the life of one of God's great leaders to rise up and not know the Lord. Joshua, who witnessed the works of God from Egypt, who Moses selected to command a militia group for their first battle after exiting Egypt, who later accompanied Moses when he ascended Mount Sinai of all places to commune with God. Joshua, who was one of the 12 spies sent by Moses to explore and report on the land of Canaan, where only he and Caleb came back, right, and gave a promising report despite seeing giants there. God was so displeased with the rest of the spies for their fear of the giants and unbelief that God could help them take the land that he commanded every person who was 20 years and older to die in the wilderness except for Caleb and Joshua because of their faith. They would be the only two of their entire generation who would enter the promised land. This Joshua, a leader, a faith-filled man, an example to the descendants after him, and yet when he and that generation died, the next generation rose up behind him who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. If that's the case then, how much trouble do you think we're in, friends? We are witnessing with our very eyes a generation coming up behind us that does not know the Lord. Where are we headed? And so we need to take inventory. What is the condition of our heart towards the Lord, truly? Because whatever condition it is in, what we are passing on to the generations behind us is going to come from that. So let me go through a few verses. I'm going to go through a few verses and then I'm going to try to give some practical examples after that in our lives today that's happening in society. Okay. So like I said in the talking about Joshua, well, in the last chapter of the book of Joshua, Joshua challenged the people to choose between the God of Israel or the counterfeits in their midst. By the time we reach Joshua 24 verses 14 to 15, he makes a clear and bold statement. And he says, Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth. Going on to say, And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve going on to say, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Who will we choose to serve today as the cultural pressures mount around us? Who are we serving now? So Joshua says, serve the Lord in sincerity and truth. Well, let's take sincerity first, and this is going to take a few minutes. When we think of sincerity today, we may think of words like, of course, honest and genuine and integrity, right? But in the Bible, it means more than that. To serve God with sincerity means to offer him a heart of purity. And sincerity and purity are words that are often used interchangeably in the Bible. To be sincere means to be pure, clean, spotless, without blemish. It means to be blameless and upright. It means having a heart that is unalloyed, like an unmixed substance. That's what it means to be sincere. 
And this is important because purity is a quality possessed by God, which should characterize the conduct of believers, shouldn't it? I mean, part of his refining process in us is to bring forth a heart of of purity, a heart that is clean, a heart that is holy. Be holy for I am holy, right? Joshua was strongly urging the Israelites to choose purity rather than the mixture often by the pagan culture around them. And that's the choice we are faced with too, friends. We are in a pagan culture. We may not be bowing to physical idols today, but we are knowingly or unknowingly bowing our hearts to things that rob God of our full devotion. And it's not just in Joshua where we find the importance of purity and truth. What about the verse, create in me a clean heart and renew a a right spirit, it says steadfast spirit for some of you, but create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. This is a popular verse quoted from Psalm 5110. But what does it mean? Well, the psalmist is after purity. To create a clean heart is something only God can do because he is the only creator. Only he can create a clean heart out of a dirty one. So when we pray to have God create a clean heart in us, it's to ask him to create a heart that is absent of impurity, absent of filthiness and defilement, absent of imperfection. And he will do that for us through the process of sanctification by his spirit. Have you ever heard the blessing at the end of a church service from 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 to, I think 23? It says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So all you have to do is ask. God demands that his children have spiritual and moral purity, unsullied by sin. Because you see, sin is what pollutes one generation to another. So that's what you're asking him when you pray that verse, create in me a clean heart, renew a steadfast spirit within me, renew a right spirit within me. He is faithful and he will surely do the work in you if you ask. And the beauty of that is that there is hope available even to the chief of sinners because any man can entreat the mercy of God and renew a right spirit within them. And to have your spirit made right means to be established, readied, prepared. It means to be firmly anchored. You see, the Lord is pure, so he wants us to be pure. We are called to be pure. It says in Habakkuk 1.13, You are of pure eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. He's speaking of the Lord. The Lord is so pure, he cannot behold evil. He cannot look on wickedness. He does not want you to have any part of that in your heart, in your life, right? And so if we are his children and yet unwilling to change or forfeit sin in our life that he considers evil or impure, what does that say? Or if we are his children and mixing with things that are considered by God to be wickedness, What does that say when he sent his son to pay the price for us to be made pure? See, the whole point of the passage in Psalm 51 is to be in alignment with the Lord, to be pure, to be established, to be ready. And so like Joshua, we must fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth. Now, here's a few passages from the New Testament. In Hebrews 10, it says, Let us draw near with a true heart, that is, with a sincere heart, spotless, blameless, clean. How about the very last part of the book of Ephesians in Ephesians 6, verse 24? Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in 
sincerity. That means in purity, without spot. How about 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, when Paul says, For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Sincerity is purity. And this is a good thing to test today. Who is peddling the word of God for selfish gain? Who is marketing God for money and not from a sincere heart? Because that's what Paul was accused of. And he set about defending their sincerity with God's word. How about 2 Corinthians 1.12 when he says, We conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. They conducted themselves in godly purity. They were blameless. How about 1 Corinthians 5.8 when he says he's talking about the feast of Passover and he says, well, let us keep the feast Passover with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Where the Israelites, where people, Jewish people, were feverishly cleaning their house and cleansing it of leaven, which is representative of sin, Paul makes an, uh, puts some imagery to it for a Christian. We are to uh, keep the feast, honor Christ, basically, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, of purity, of truth. We are to be without sin. What about 1 Peter 1.22? He says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. So loving our heavenly family must be sincere. It must be genuine. It must be pure, unmixed. What about Titus 1.15? To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. And lastly, how about 1 Timothy 1.5? He says, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. What this means, it's knowing oneself. In other words, by which we were in which we apprehend the will of God as that which is designed to govern our lives. We're going to receive input from our surroundings through temptations and events. And we are then driven to make a decision, aren't we, in those moments. It's our moral conscience. That's how we are to love. We are to love from this place, from a, a moral conscience and sincere faith. Faith, what it means in there is faith without hypocrisy. It's purity. So even when we are in our surroundings and we are bombarded with things, we have to make sure that we have a pure heart in that and that all the decision-making we are making in those moments is coming from a pure heart and sincere faith. You can now see the importance of the beatitude in Matthew 5.8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So how do we get pure? Well, first, we must get before the Lord and ask him to search our heart, right? And it usually starts with repentance. And repentance in the Greek means to think differently. Your mind is not in alignment with Christ. And in the Hebrew, it means turn around, turn away from your sin, go a different direction. In other words, flee from the devil, his temptations, and he will flee from you. And so we have to get before the Lord and we have to ask him, Lord, search my heart. It can be something that seems very minor to you, but is important to God. For me, it can be the way I spoke to my husband. It can be the way I thought about something. My mind wasn't in the right alignment. And that's what we have to do. We have to search our hearts. What sin are you sitting in that you need to repent of? Jesus cleanses us with his blood and the washing of the water of his word when we repent of our sins. We don't just repent once at conversion and that's it. Our lives should be a continual state of self-examination. 
We repent when our hearts stray. And some of us never really think about this. We're never really taught. It's not really talked about in church, repentance, which is strange. And so it might be a high time for some of us to take a spiritual shower, so to speak. Because it says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To have a sincere heart towards God is to have a clean heart towards him. And the cleaning comes through repentance. Therefore, to confess is to agree with God, to admit that how we are living is not in alignment to his word, no matter how minor or major the sin is. I mean, for some of you, you know, maybe the question is, are you promiscuous and bouncing around from one partner to the next, even though you call yourself a Christian? If so, you need to repent and be cleansed. Or maybe this, are you mixing new age practices with your faith in Christ? Then you need to repent and be cleansed. Forgiveness and cleansing are guaranteed, but we need to confess. We need to be washed, made pure, spotless, without blemish. And yes, I know he does that upon salvation. But then you walk out the door of that church, right? And the old nature starts rearing its ugly head. And so that's why it's a continual process. And we need it in order to operate from a sincere place in our hearts. We want to serve him from a pure heart. Let me give you a biblical example of what this might look like. In Ezra chapter 9, when the Israelites started returning from Babylon, where they were exiled because they dishonored God, the men began to intermarry with pagan women. Well, God's law stated and was very clear that the holy seed of God, his people Israel, was not permitted to intermarry with pagans. Being mixed with paganism was what prompted God to exile them from the land to begin with because they started mixing. They were mixing the pure and defi- they were mixing the pure of God and and they defiled the worship of God with pagan beliefs. They would start to cry out to him when they needed him and they would go to the temple and try to offer sacrifices, but God saw everything. Because at the same time, they were adopting the other practices of worship from the pagans that had nothing to do with God. And in the midst of all this, he was so patient, which is why he sent prophet after prophet after prophet, urging them, repent and return. You're unclean. You're defiled. You're mixed. But they were stubborn. They did not think that what they were doing was so bad. And now after exile from that, they're back at it. And that's what the whole chapter is in Ezra chapter 9. It's his astonishment at it. And before you think, well, Carol, that was the law of Moses. That doesn't apply to us today. May I mention that no less is expected for followers of Jesus Christ? Being Christian means we too are his holy seed. Therefore, Paul makes very clear in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, that believers are not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This isn't just talking about in marriage. It's true in life. We are to be in the world, yes, but we are no longer of the world. We may find ourselves in the culture worlds, but we are not of the culture worlds, wars. We don't yoke ourselves to the ideologies born from the deceitful hearts of unregenerate man, We yoke ourselves to the foundational principles of Christ. As new creations in Christ Jesus, we must remember this is not our home. Like the Israelites, we are to be a holy, set-apart people. We are to be pure morally and ethically. We are to make sure that we are affecting the world, but that the world is not infecting us. And so we must Guard our hearts so as not to develop a dangerous affection for the things of the world. Proverbs 4, 23 to 27 says this, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Put away from you a deceitful mouth and put perverse lips far from you. Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet 
and let all your ways be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from evil. You see, everything about life and our response to it springs from our heart. That's why God is after our heart. And that is why the throne of of his throne in us is our heart. Paul says in that same chapter, 2 Corinthians 6, what has the communion of light, which is us, what does it have to do with darkness, which is the world? What accord has Christ with Belial, who is Satan? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement does the temple of God, which is us, have with idols? In other words, if we are finding ourselves aligning more with the philosophies and belief systems of the outside world, we need to get realigned, friends. Christ's command is pretty simple. Follow him. Love him first and foremost above everyone and everything else. For we cannot truly love anyone else with God's love if our hearts are not aligned with his. Do not be unequally yoked to this world. To yoke with something is to associate differently than what God is requiring of his people because it means coupling together with something, whether a person or a type of thinking. I'm not saying this to condemn anyone, but to speak truth and love to you. Some of us out there, we're yoking ourselves to a significant other outside of the covenant of marriage. Some of us out there are yoking ourselves to new age practices. Even the word yoga, for example, means to yoke or to union. And so we must test everything because so much impurity has come into the church. And if you can't see it, I, I, pray, I pray and ask God to help you see it. Because God wants us to serve him with a sincere heart, a heart that is not mixed, yoked, compromised, or corrupted, but pure. The pure in heart shall see God. And dare I bring this up, that is Pride Month right now. A whole month. A whole month devoted to pride, the sin of pride. And it's in our face everywhere. The rainbow that God created as a sign of his covenant to not destroy the earth with a flood again has been hijacked and even worse, perverted. And why did he destroy the earth to begin with? Because of pride, sin. All flesh was corrupted on the earth except the few he spared. And we're celebrating being prideful. And you know what pride means in the Bible? Arrogance, self-conceit. To celebrate Pride Month is to celebrate the very thing that got Satan thrown out of heaven. It's to celebrate the very thing that changed angels into devils, into demons. It's to celebrate the very thing that put the world in the wretched condition it's in to begin with, Genesis 3.6. And some of us are yoking with pride right now, whether we support it or don't want to be seen as unloving if we don't support it. But it's mixing. It's celebrating a sin that God destroyed his angels for, that he destroyed the earth for. For a Christian to celebrate Pride Month, Arrogance Month, Self-Conceited Month, is mixing. And Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. If we're celebrating sin, whether the sin of pride or something else, our hearts are divided. Our will is not his will. But the last few decades have shown that's where we are. When we took it upon ourselves within the church to change the church, to reframe what church was to look like, and then at the same time recast Jesus in an unoffendable light as a God of love that doesn't mind our sin. And it's a lie from the pit of hell. To be double-minded means you are unstable in all of your ways. It means you are always vacillating 
described as if you have two souls, living one life for yourself and the other for God, when it's convenient. But God doesn't operate that way, and he doesn't expect his family to either. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Loyalty. That is what the Lord is after. Because a loyal heart is a perfect heart, a complete heart, a sincere heart. And he will show himself strong on behalf of someone who has that. Now I'm going to read you a passage that is incredibly difficult for many in the body of Christ. In fact, we avoid it altogether. It's probably one of Paul's most challenging to the body of Christ. But I want to show you the encouragement in it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 8-11, through 11, it says, Do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is speaking to Christians who used to operate in these things, as were some of you. Some of you in Corinth were drunkards, covetous, fornicators, and would have never inherited the kingdom of God, but you were washed of these sins. You were sanctified and justified now as if you never did these things. God does not approve of these things. Otherwise, he would not want. God doesn't approve of these things. Otherwise, he wouldn't want us to change, right? And the encouragement is this. God, despite, despite all these sins, he's so gracious to change us and to work in our lives and wash us from these things. He doesn't want us to stay in those things. For an, To be a fornicator is where we get the word pornography, pornos. It means illicit sexual intercourse, like adultery, incest, and idolatry. Some such were some of you. But I washed you of it. You're being sanctified now, made pure, holy. You're no longer that. So when you read a list of sins like that, no, we are not to stay like that. We're to change. Pornography, friends, is a crisis within the church. When are we as a body going to start addressing some of these things so that we can be healed, made whole, washed clean from this stuff? Do we think it would be okay to celebrate fornication? To celebrate something that is literally destroying the souls of people, that is literally destroying marriages? Many of the sins plaguing society right now are sexual in nature, by the way. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says this, Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Chew on that one for a minute. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. He who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You're not your own. You're not your own, friend. 
So if you're a reviler, a idolater, an adulterer, a fornicator, it says homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, extortioners, any of that, you're not your own. And he wants you to change as were some of you. And you're not your own anymore because you were bought at a price, the rest of that verse says. As a Christian, you were purchased with the precious blood of Christ. He purchased you. He is now your master, your Lord. That's what that means. We submit now to the Lord, the one who purchased our soul from damnation. So no, your body is not your choice. When you say my body, my choice, no, it's not because you're not your own. I bring this up because our thinking, how we think about our body, how we think about our sin, how we think about sex affects our heart. And if our thinking is not in alignment with Christ, then neither is our heart. And our heart is not sincere. Now, what about truth? The world tells us it means accuracy, something factual. But truth in the Bible is something that cannot be owned by men because it belongs to God. Truth of an idea, truth of reality, truth of sincerity, truth in the moral sphere, truth in the ethical sphere. Truth is divine knowledge revealed to man, straightforward and unchanging. Every good idea out there comes from God, my friends. Every reality out there comes from God. Everything that is pure comes from God. What was said in scripture thousands of years ago is equally as relevant and important today because God does not change and God is truth, just as God is love. His love is unchanging and his truth is unchanging. And since mankind cannot pull God from his throne, guess what? They'll come as close as possible by attacking his truth, twisting it, vilifying it, casting out of doubt to the point that even Christians now doubt the infallibility of God's word. Is that you? But not only that, many are fearful of even speaking his truth out of his word for fear of the world hating them. But you know, God is so much bigger than all of that. He has made it so that no matter how hard people try to destroy his truth, they won't. His word cannot be changed, chained. His word cannot be bound. It will never be snuffed out. Paul suffered as an evildoer because of the gospel of truth. People said he was evil for speaking the truth. 2 Timothy 2. Is truth not the great treasure that God delivered to his saints with serious instruction to keep it against all that might try to undermine it? So what is truth? Well, to serve the Lord in sincerity and truth means to do what is right, to know what is right, to be established. It is something that is faithful. It's never changing. And why do we need to be established in his truth? So that we are not children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, with every wind of counterfeit movements, with every version of truth mankind tries to come up with, we can say without, with all certainty and believe that what God says is true. His word is truth. And we are being assaulted and bombarded right now on every side, friends, with lies, lies disguised as truth. And many people are being taken captive by it. Lies about creation, lies about marriage, lies about being created male and female, lies about pride and sin and immorality. You and me, we need his truth. And thankfully, thankfully, we have it as part of our armor. When you think about putting on the armor of God found in Ephesians 6, truth is a key piece. It's called a belt, or in some Bibles it might say girdle. The armor consists of the breastplate of righteousness, right? has the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, um, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, and the helmet of salvation. And this armor describes pieces that cover both the upper and lower parts of our body. But truth 
is the belt that connects them all together, the upper and lower parts of our armor. It fastens it all together, and so the more closely the belt is drawn to the body, the more the loins are strengthened. That's why when God wanted to weaken a people, he used the expression, I will loosen the loins of kings, like in Isaiah 45. In other words, he'll weaken them. So as we tighten truth around us, the more our loins are strengthened, the more we are strengthened, because truth is our strength. Psalm 91 says, it's a psalm many of us pray for safety, that one. It has verses that says, His truth shall be your shield and buckler. To have his truth as our shield and buckler means that his truth is our protector, our defense. The shield and buckler are interesting. Shield comes from the Hebrew word uh, sinal, which is often used for the English word shield or more accurately a large shield. But it is also used to express the idea of a hook or a barb. And the relationship between these words is that a hook or barb is able to set up a barrier or a shield by the mere fact of its prickliness. Think of a state prison, for example. It has its fencing all around it, right? But it may have on the very top of the fencing curled up barbed wire. So a prisoner trying to escape may scale the fence, right, the shield, but get hung up on the barbed wire, getting all kinds of cuts on him. Or think of the Iron Dome in Israel, right? Something like that. It does more than a shield. It deflects then like a shield does, but then it literally destroys the missiles that are shot at them. So that's what the Iron Dome does. It's, it's got that almost like the prickliness. You, you're going to get cut up. Something's going to get destroyed. Well, when we think of a shield... We think of a metal tray-like thing that a soldier holds in front of him, right, to ward off arrows and swords. But a sinah is more than that. It is not just a shield, but an impenetrable shield. A shield that will not only discourage or deflect any attack, but is capable of causing great harm through its prickliness if an enemy even dares to attack. That's the power of truth. It's our shield, our sinal, our buckler. That's why people don't like it. That's why they're uncomfortable with it. They try to get around it, but they get pricked. They get poked. They get cut, like sticking your hand in a rose bush, right? His shield of truth and righteousness is that very thing that stands against every lie, every curse, and every deception of the enemy. That's why we can't back down or shrink in fear from embracing and speaking his truth. For his truth to be our shield, we have nothing to fear. His truth is so powerful and so supernatural, but it is going to cut the people that are trying to come against it. That's why it says in this verse in Romans chapter 13, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. The armor of light that Paul speaks of here is a picture of putting on Christ because he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the light and life of men. And his light goes out into the darkness and the darkness cannot comprehend it. So friend, if you are dressed in heavenly armor, the armor of light with the belt of truth, the darkness cannot comprehend you. It cannot seize that light away from you. And you see, this is what's missing in society right now. Truth. God's truth. Truth that sets people free. We have people in bondage right now to mental illness, to sexual sin, to witchcraft, and more. 
The church has the answer for the world, not to mention the authority in the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us to help them experience freedom. But for some reason, not very many in the church are stepping into that. And may I say, people don't need to hear your truth or my truth or that author's truth or that public figure's truth. They need to hear God's truth from the Bible, from his word. Until then, people will remain in bondage and deception. Because I tell you, the moment you speak truth into someone's life and the freedom begins, the enemy cannot come against the truth. That truth is prickly and sharp and it's going to cut them and it's going to cut through to things. I pray and I ask you to pray that God has counted us worthy of this calling, as Paul says to the Thessalonians to be worthy of the calling to carry this gospel of truth in order to fulfill the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, Paul says, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in us and us in him. Written to Christians who would die for this truth. As Paul says to, to Timothy, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Preach the word, friend. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. Be patient. People aren't going to like it. For the time will come. When they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Satan will stop at nothing to deceive the saints of God, especially as the time draws near for Christ's return. He will come as a serpent to deceive with his forked tongue, speaking lies and hypocrisy, double-mindedness, dividing the heart. He will use false teachers to cheat us with error disguised as truth. Tertullian described it as this, the false teachers. They teach by persuading and do not by teaching persuade. In other words, false teachers, they court the emotions of their hearers without convicting their judgment. Like a seducer, they'll use romantic overtones appealing to the flesh. That's what false teachers do. They appeal to our flesh. It sounds good. It feels good. It seems good. It makes me happy. It's, it makes me feel safe. People like me. But then error like a thief sneaks its way into our temple, into our house, and deceives us. Truth doesn't act like a thief, friends, but rather like an owner. Like the owner of a house, house, truth enters the front door of understanding and from there moves into the conscience. It pricks, it pokes, it convicts. When the word of truth pierces the soul, it cuts. It discerns between the soul and the spirit. It discerns between the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's cutting away the fake. It's cutting away the deception. It's the sword of the spirit in your armor. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. And it cuts us to the core, to our conscience, which is why we squirm. And so we must desire the truth, even if it's hard. Because the potter is still at work on the clay. If we avoid difficult biblical truth altogether, the refiner can't refine us. If we do not desire to know the truth, We have already rejected it. Because after Satan has wormed his way in, then guess what? He pounces like a lion, persuading the persecutors, striving to separate saints from the truth of God through fear, fear of persecution. You don't want to go to jail, do you? You don't want to lose your 501c3, do you? Or fear of alienation. You might lose friends if you say that. You might lose members if you teach that. Or fear of danger and death, right? You don't want to move to that country. Do you know what they do to Christians in that country? You don't want to serve in that part of town. 
fear. Fear. And the only way to defend ourselves against him and his tactics is to be girded with the belt of truth, to know what the Lord says and to walk in that and to embrace it and to live it and to live with the heart of purity, loyal to the Lord. So that when the voice of the stranger is speaking, we don't entertain it. We only follow the voice of our shepherd, the voice of truth. But I'm afraid (laughs) there's a lot of hirelings out there. Make sure you know the voice of your shepherd and are not listening to the hirelings. Because the hirelings, they see the wolf coming and they don't protect the sheep. They protect themselves. So in Hebrews it says, if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And so hearing all of this, let's discern who are we getting our truth from. Number one, watch for those who want God's truth for carnal advantage. Sometimes carrying God's truth pays well. It can be very profitable. But think of the whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead men's bones and all sorts of impurity, right? In other words, they'll take your money, but they're not going to give you the very thing that will set you free. Truth, (laughs) Truth finds few people today who love her freely. And so we must exercise great discernment to be able to identify the genuine from the counterfeit. Number two, watch for those who talk about truth but do not live it. Many kiss Christ, but few love him. True love means the holiest, sincerest marriage. When our souls give itself to the Lord, we are then ruled by God's Spirit and ordered by his word of truth. For some, the reality of what God is saying is too strong a truth to carry in a world that will condemn them for it, even family and friends. Herod feared the truth spoken by John the Baptist, and it cost John his life, didn't it? Are you willing to live out his truth, even if it costs you your life? And then watch for those who have no zeal against the enemies of truth. Jesus said he will vomit the lukewarm church out of his mouth, neither hot nor cold. A go-along-to-get-along church, always vacillating. He also said to the dead church that if they did not repent, they risked having their name blotted out of his book of life. Jesus is looking for a faithful church, a people who will stand, people who have kept his word, have not denied his name, and persevered. Zeal in a Christ follower acts like a fire, It's passionate, enthusiastic, and eager. And when truth is under assault, it should rise up in us like a flame that was just stoked, igniting in us eagerness, a passion to defend it. Jeremiah was passionate about the Lord, but it was hard. His friends talked about him behind his back, ridiculed him, turned him into authorities. Until Jeremiah had had enough and said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But then he says, his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not, even though my acquaintances watch for my stumbling. But the Lord is with me as a mighty awesome one. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. Friend, if you stand for truth, You just might have an acquaintance that is going to watch for your stumbling. But just know that God will be strong with you. Jeremiah was someone who knew his Lord. His heart served him in sincerity and truth no matter the cost. That's what zeal does. That's what zeal for the truth does. If it is pent up in the heart of a private Christian and cannot flame forth to punish evil, it burns inwardly. For many of you, it comes out through grief and travail and prayer, doesn't it? It consumes the spirit of a Christian for not rescuing truth from stampeding profanity and error. I'm not Jeremiah, but boy, oh boy, can I relate to his words. That's how I feel most times. Grief over the trampling of God's truth. Astonishment over the complacency in the body of Christ. And it lays on my heart like a burning 
flame. And in that zeal, I am sure I have rubbed some people the wrong way without meaning to. But it burns within me. And I didn't put it there. He did. He burns within me because I asked him to. And we need zeal today, friends, against the enemies of truth. We need zeal in the body of Christ today. Zeal to say, enough! Enough! No more abortions. No more euthanasia, which is skyrocketing in Canada, by the way, killing off the elderly. Thou shalt not murder. It's not thou shalt not kill. That's an incorrect translation. There are two two Hebrew words for homicide, just as there are in the English language. Two words, kill and murder. Kill is harag. Murder is ratzak. In Exodus, for the Ten Commandments, it's ratzak. Murder means illegal killing. There is legal killing. You can kill an animal to eat it and a person in self-defense, like war, But murder is illegal killing. What is it going to take for the church to say, enough illegal killing? We are breaking a commandment of God's. And we can't even come to mutual understanding and agreement on this very important issue because we don't know the Lord. And we don't understand what his word says. When are we going to say enough No more inappropriate curriculum in our schools feeding the minds of our little ones. No more. Enough. When are we going to really rise up and speak against this stuff? Where is our voice? Neutrality is not biblical. It keeps a distance. Neutrality refuses to suffer for truth even when we see see truth and error mingling together. Neutrality keeps us Neutral, neither hot nor cold, always vacillating, a double-minded person, unstable in all their ways. We must serve the Lord in sincerity and truth. And I believe that when we do, friends, we are going to see mountains move. James 5 says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Oh, may that be us. May that be us. You know what our nation is struggling with? It's it's a spirit of harlotry, or as the Bible calls it, whoredom. The prophet Hosea puts it in chapter 4 like this. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore, the land will mourn because they ceased obeying the Lord. Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers deeply love dishonor. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. And because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. This was prophesied to the children of Israel when they became so self-consumed, lovers of self rather than lovers of God, and it was their ruin. And they refused to repent and return. And that's where we are as a nation. And dare I say, even many Christians... And if we don't repent and return, friends, it will be our ruin. Full of self, divided hearts. As it says in Hosea 10, their heart is divided. Now they are held guilty. A spirit of harlotry or whoredom is a spirit of adultery, of infidelity, which is called idolatry. It's prostituting ourselves with the world with other affections and passions. This spirit is rampant in the world right now, designed to seduce the saints of God away from its first love. It symbolized Israel's attitude towards God. Many lovers, right? And it symbolizes many attitudes today towards God. 
That's why Joshua gave them an ultimatum. Choose today whom you will serve. Friend, choose today who you will serve. Which brings me to hypocrisy. The opposite of sincerity is hypocrisy, a lie with an attractive cover. The hypocrite is a Christian by outward appearance only, not by a new nature. Hypocrisy hides in a crowd. He does what everyone else does. The voice of the people becomes the voice of his God. Be careful, Christian, to guard against hypocrisy. What a horrible, horrible conversation it would be in your dying hour to cry, Lord, Lord, have mercy on me. And to hear God's answer, I never knew you. Always remember, light things are carried by the stream and light spirits by the crowd. But the sincere Christian is a heavy substance. It would rather sink to the bottom than surrender to the multitude and float along with them in the flow of sin. Joshua spoke his heart even when 10 out of the 12 spies said what the people wanted them to say. Sincerity, friends, makes you fearful to sin. Sincerity preserves the soul in the hour of temptation and does more to comfort you from the persecution of slander. Not only will it quench those flames that spit in your face by tongue set on fire by hell, but it will sustain you in the face of physical persecution also, if God allows that. Either way, a pure heart will make you bold to burn and joyfully hug the flames of martyrdom, should it come to that. Saul's heart was never right with God, so the Lord sought someone with a heart like his, David. Sadly, many hearts are divided right now, and it's one grand and grievous fault within the Church of Christ at the present day. For some of us, we want salvation, and we want our sin. I'm going to tell you, this grieves the heart of God. Harlotry, horridom, being unfaithful to God grieves his heart. As it says in Ezekiel 6, he was crushed by their adulterous heart crushed by their adulterous heart. God's heart can be crushed by an insincere heart, a heart that is mixed, a heart that is impure, and an unstable mind of double-mindedness. And Christian, we don't have any excuse we can give to God for this, do we? When the Bible is so readily available to us, and we can search the scriptures to see what he says on a matter. So we are without excuse. But it's not too late. Like the church of lukewarm Laodicea, when he says, Therefore, be zealous and repent. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Revelation 3.19 It's his love that brings us back into alignment, friend, if we're willing. He's merciful, but we must acknowledge our iniquity. He'll forgive us, but we must repent. Jesus is returning for a pure, spotless bride without blemish, the Bible says. We still have time to make ourselves ready because a time is coming when we go on trial for our lives before the judgment seat of Christ. And the great question will be whether or not we have been sincere. Were we pure of heart, undefiled, unmixed, without spot and blemish? And did we love his truth? And were we willing to follow his truth? He will not condemn a sincere soul, though a thousand sins be brought against it. So if that's you, if your heart is condemning you, even though you serve the Lord in sincerity and truth, I want to encourage you with the story from the Old Testament with King Asa of Judah. Asa was sincere but had failures. Even though he did not remove the high places of false worship in Israel, nevertheless, the Bible says, Asa's heart was perfect with the Lord all his days. 1 Kings fifteen fourteen. Asa's failures give a greater attractiveness to his sincerity, which in spite of his sins, won a good testimony from God's own mouth. 
yet another king, Amaziah of Judah, much later? It says, He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a perfect heart. 2 Chronicles 25.2 His actions were good, but his attitude, his attitude was faulty, and this turned his right into a wrong. He was insincere. So someone can look like, act like, walk like, and talk like a Christian, but God always looks upon the heart. And if this is you, if your heart has been divided, if you have been mixing Christ with what is unholy, if you have neglected the whole counsel of God, ignored his word in order to justify a lifestyle, now is the time to repent. Now is the time to make sure that you seek his face and make changes and return to him. Sincerity of heart makes us in tune with God's heart. God pities our weakness and knows our heart. If it is sincere towards him, he looks upon us with great compassion, quickly washing those sins away by his blood of mercy the moment we acknowledge them. And if our heart being sincere towards him condemns us, he is greater than our heart. 1 John 3.21 Looks, friend, Satan wants to sift us as wheat. Pray to be strengthened so that once we are, we can help strengthen other brothers and sisters in the faith. Every person goes where their love carries them. If the world has your love, you will spend your life for it. But if truth has your love, you will put your life in the middle of it rather than let it be mangled. And so we must ask ourselves, what is the value of sincerity and truth in our heart? I want to close with this passage in Hebrews 10, chapter 22 to 25. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as in the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I hope this blessed you. Until next time, take care. (music) 